Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. I am Stephen Kilpatrick, your host. Come on into the cabin. I think winter has now left us for the rest of this year, but there is still a good bit of chill, isn't there? Now, I know that we are a horror podcast at the end of the day, but I cannot let Terry Pratchett's passing go by without comment. Most of Mr. Pratchett's writings would not fall into the category of horror, even by a stretch, but his literary contributions were important to me and based on the response of my comment on the Tales to Terrify Facebook page, important to some of you as well. His genre was mainly where fantasy and humor intersected. I'd like to share a story about myself, if you'd permit me. When I was in my early teens, I had managed to become a member of the science fiction book club. You remember those sort of outfits, don't you? The ones where the first one is free, and then you have to promise to buy at least eight or ten or a dozen more. Well, by the end of my membership of the book club, I had a trunk filled with hardcover books, and about a third of them were Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. By word count, I think that to this day I've read more Pratchett than any other author. Just before I was of driving age, my dad found himself being lifelighted for emergency surgery for an aortic aneurysm. He was later told that when the sawbones unzipped his chest, the aneurysm ruptured, showering the operating theater in blood. He was also told that he was dead for a while, too. When I was finally allowed to see him, I had been told that he'd be in the hospital recovering for quite some time. Figuring that if I had that much downtime, I'd want something to read, I chose one of those hardcover books out of the trunk for him. The one I chose? Terry Pratchett's Mort. Yes, the book about how the personification of death takes an apprentice. To this day, I'm still uncertain if that was the most appropriate or most inappropriate book to leave for him to read. Terry Pratchett, you'll be missed. On to tonight's fiction. Jonathan Nichols is an enthusiastic writer of horror and suspense. He has one novel completed and a large number of short stories. His publications include the online horror magazines Dead Man's Tome and Blood Moon Rising, as well as a story in the trade paperback anthology Out of Our Minds, edited by Janet Jacobs. His story Deadly Pleasure won third place in the Dead Man's Tome 2012 short story contest. Jonathan works as an avionics technician at Lockheed Martin Aeronautics. 
He also holds two master's degrees, a Master of Science in Management and a Master's of Business Administration in Aviation from Embry-Riddle Aeronautics University. He is a current member of North Texas Professional Writers Association. When he is not writing or maintaining aircraft, he spends time with his wife and three children in Bedford, Texas. More stories and information on Jonathan can be found at jonathandnichols.com. Link will be in the show notes. And tonight, Tales to Terrify presents Jonathan Nichols' Jack of the Lantern. Stingy Jack was an evil man, Sally began. He hated everyone and cared about one thing, making people miserable. He was selfish and mean, and wanted to do whatever he wanted with no consequences. One day, Jack met the devil at a crossroads. She spoke in an eerie voice when she said this. Looking directly at Jack, the little boy sitting in the circle adjacent to her, There were eleven fourth-grade children up in the treehouse, wearing their Halloween costumes, engaging in their second annual tradition of telling scary stories prior to setting out on their trick-or-treating expedition. Jack shuddered at the sound of his name, but tried to maintain his composure despite the fear he felt. Sally continued her story. Jack and the devil had a drink together. And after they were finished, Jack told the devil he did not have money to pay for it. Because the devil had the power to do anything he wanted, Jack convinced him to turn himself into a coin to pay for the drinks, and afterward he could change back. The devil agreed this was a clever idea. But immediately upon his transformation, he realized he had been outsmarted. Jack quickly placed the coin in his pocket, where he had a silver cross. The devil was trapped, and Jack made him promise not to take his soul when he died. The devil agreed, and was set free by Jack. Over the years, Jack turned so evil he could never be redeemed. He murdered children on Halloween, killed their families, stole from the poor, and hurt anybody who got in his way. When Jack finally died, he was too wicked to go to heaven. He was sent to hell, but Satan would not admit him. Jack had nowhere to go, so the devil threw a burning coal from hell towards him, saying, Use that to light your way as you wander the earth. To keep his hands from burning, Jack carved out a pumpkin and placed the coal inside. Now, when you see a jack-o'-lantern, it is so wandering spirits can light their way on earth. That was stupid, Jessica said, adorned in her cowgirl attire, sequins glittering on her red hat from the flashlight. Are you going to have a drink with the devil, Jack? Charlie asked in his Frankenstein makeup. Shut up, Jack said. His voice sounded muffled from the plastic vampire fangs covering his top teeth. The story was not that scary, Jack thought. He knew he was only fooling himself, though. The group stood up and exited the wooden shack, climbing down the ladder single file. It was candy time and getting frightened beforehand was the best part of this evening. They would travel in the moonlight with dim street lamps and lit patios to guide them in the darkness. Sally led the way, and the group headed to the first house with its porch illuminated to provide indication the owner was at home. She rapped on the door. They all waited, and an elderly man answered, holding a bowl brimmed over with candy. "'Trick or treat!' the children shouted, smiling happily at the young candy scavengers. The man revealed a set of browned teeth. Trey, the werewolf, 
and Jack the Vampire both winced at the man's grin, but gladly accepted the confection. Following their leader, Sally the ballerina, the group proceeded on to the next house, decorated with orange strings of light along the edge of the roof and jack-o'-lanterns at the doorway. For a brief moment, Jack stopped in his tracks. The carved pumpkin on the porch appeared to be hovering, and he could swear its eyes were centralized on him. Looking at the rest of his friends, he realized none of them perceived this anomaly. When he turned his gaze back to the pumpkin, it was settled on the ground, not facing him at all. He shuddered at the carved lantern and continued on with the others. The routine was the same as before. Doorbell was rung, all yelled the required phrase, and the owner of the house administered the candy. This time, the resident was a middle-aged lady, dressed in a witch costume. She laughed at the sight of all the little monsters. I love your costumes. They smiled and expressed their gratitude. She offered them a bowl to choose whichever treat they desired. All eleven of them smiled when they peered inside the concave container. Inside was full-sized candy bars, not the miniature fun-sized ones. We'll have to remember this house, Jessica said when they left. The group paraded down the street, and Jack glanced over to his right. He suddenly jumped in surprise. Across the road... A lit pumpkin floated in the air, presumably held by an invisible person. He tapped Trey to get his attention. Look! The two of them stared in the direction of the lantern, and Jack was bewildered to see two young children, dressed as animals, being escorted by their mother. Their candy buckets were pumpkin-shaped. What? Trey asked. Um, nothing, Jack said. They continued on for five more houses before turning the street corner. To their left emerged a cul-de-sac, behind which stood staggering trees and a stretch of woods beyond. A known pathway existed leading through the forest, serving as a shortcut to another neighborhood. After this next street, we ought to cut across that way to get more candy, Sally said. The rest of the group agreed in unison. While they continually visited houses, they came across one decorated extravagantly with lights, inflatable characters in the yard, fake graves scattered throughout the grass, styrofoam bones, skeletons, and more. Wow, Jack and Charlie said at the same time. Great decorations, said Sally. They strolled through the haunted yard and knocked on the door. While they stood there, a robotic witch to their left reverberated with a loud cackle. The children jumped, and then turned to face the door when the home's occupant opened to greet them. The man stood there, adorned all in red, wearing a blood-colored cape. He held a brightly painted pitchfork, wore horns on his head, and a black goatee growing on his chin. "'Happy Halloween!' he said to them all, holding out a large black plastic cauldron filled with treats. Take whatever you want. Inside the black container was a large quantity of boxed candy, similar to those one would purchase at a movie theater. They smiled and expressed exhilaration at the treats being offered. This was better than the candy bar lady. They each removed a box of sweets, one at a time. Jack was the final child to stretch his arm into the cauldron. The man dressed as Satan looked into his eyes. His lips curved up to form a smile, which appeared sinful and mischievous. The blue-colored eyes faded into a rosy glow. "'Happy Halloween, Jack,' the man whispered. Jack suddenly noticed the horns for his costume— were not attached to a headband of any kind. How were they secured to his scalp? Were they real? Jack turned and fled, 
now aware the rest of his group had gone on without him. "'Trey!' he shouted. "'Sally! Jessica!' He received no response. There were no houses left to visit on this street. It seemed reasonable to conclude his friends were heading back to the beaten path. Jack became determined to advance upon them, so headed in the direction of the blind alley near the forest. Other children laughed and hurried from house to house as he sped past, dressed as ghosts, goblins, witches, and monsters. Three separate times Jack spied glowing pumpkins floating in the air, moving along with no person carrying them. Each time this occurred, he bolted faster, calling his friend's names as he breathed heavily. "'Sally! Trey! Charlie!' Finally, he made it to the pathway. Children's voices were heard from within the forest. "'It has to be them,' he thought. Without a second thought, he took off down the dirt trail leading into the trees. "'Sally! Wait up!' The shadows from the trees resulted in overwhelming darkness. Jack had a small glow stick to light his path, but nothing more. He was barely able to see where he was going when he heard a man's laugh in front of him. This made him stop in his tracks. That could not be his friends. No way. The voice was too deep. He waited and after nothing else happened, ran again. "'Where are you going, Jack?' The voice screamed out, now coming from behind. Jack turned and saw a dim light floating towards him. His legs started to quiver, and he could not bring himself to move from where he stood. The light came closer, and as it neared, the color became noticeably orange. Its shape, spherical. Finally, its distance lessened enough for Jack to view the engraved evil face leering at him with an impossibly bright flame shining from within. The pumpkin stopped in front of him, where it hung, motionless. "'What, are you scared?' the voice asked. "'You should be.' Can you guess who I am? I, I d don't know. I'll give you a hint. We share the same name. Stingy Jack? Yes, I know you heard the story. I was wicked, hurt people, and doomed to wander the earth after making a deal with the devil. What you don't know is I collect souls in my lantern. And guess what? I've chosen you. Suddenly, the face on the jack-o'-lantern convulsed in laughter, caused the tree's branches to shake. A hand touched the young boy from behind, and he jumped, turning to face the newcomer. He was surprised to find Charlie. Did you see that? Jack asked his friend. Yes, said Charlie. He indicated no fear in his eyes at all. Jack looked at him curiously. Charlie? he asked. Charlie stared past him, at the face of stingy Jack's lantern. When Jack turned to look upon his namesake, he found himself gaping at a mysteriously tall, cloaked figure comparable to the Grim Reaper the pumpkin beacon still in hand. Other footsteps and voices approached, those of young children laughing and chattering. It must be his friends. They would save him. Sally came into view first, walking from the opposite end of the pathway. The cloaked ghost of Evil Jack raised the pumpkin and hurled it in her direction. When the glowing lantern smashed into her head, the young girl crumbled to the ground. Flames spread all over her body, and she screamed. No, said the young Jack running to her. The girl dematerialized prior to his approach. Where did she go? 
he cried out. To his amazement, the pumpkin was once again in the hand of the evil spirit, intact. Jack, Charlie said sardonically. Jack looked up towards his friend and watched a transformation unlike anything comprehensible in his vilest nightmares. Charlie reached his hand to his face to wipe it. When he rubbed his hand from his forehead to his chin, the Frankenstein makeup came off, and an inhuman face was exposed beneath. The boy's eyes inflamed, and his lips formed a sneer. The teeth in his mouth were all sharp and jagged. Happy Halloween, Jack, the small demon's voice rasped. From all around, Jack's trick-or-treat gang approached, each removing their mask to reveal a demon's face. Seven incubus children arrived, and Jack took note Trey, his best friend, was not among them. The ground surrounding Jack cracked and opened, revealing a flaming chasm encircling him. Each demon, one at a time, jumped into the flames, until all had disappeared. Turning to face his new enemy, Jack's eyes widened at the flaming orange orb hurtled through the air towards him. Screaming in fear, he felt the brittle outer shell of the vegetable crack and smash into pieces on his cranium, the internal contents spreading over his face and upper body. The stringy pulp, which at first felt slimy, turned out to be scorching hot, and the boy's shadow flickered while the flames engulfed him. Screaming in torment, he pleaded for the pain to stop. Mere seconds later, the flames vanished, and his surroundings were not the forest anymore. Instead, he was boxed in by corrugated orange walls curving into a dome above him. Somehow, the child had been transported into the pumpkin, doomed to be carried by the ghost of Jack, the evil one. Heat radiated from the center of his new home, glowing and providing the entire pumpkin with a light which could blind a person were they to look straight at it. He was able to see out of the pumpkin through the carved holes in the face. Suddenly, his friend Trey appeared from among the trees. Jack? Trey said. Charlie? Sally? Trey, watch out! Jack screamed out before he lost his balance from the velocital force of the pumpkin sailing towards his friend. The orange shell fulminated as it hit the young boy, and when it did so, Jack blacked out. When he came to consciousness, he was back inside the orange orb, seemingly alone and perspiring from the heat. The holes from the carved face along the walls no longer appeared leaving him without any window to the outside world. "'Let me out of here!' he shouted. "'Let me go!' He pounded against the walls. "'Let me out!' "'When did he begin communicating again?' the woman asked the doctor. "'He came out of his catatonic state yesterday evening,' the doctor said. "'Your son spoke to himself.' but did not acknowledge the presence of others around him. When he was touched, he reacted violently, attacking the attendant and screaming hysterically. Do you think he will snap out of it? He has been through a very traumatic ordeal, the psychiatrist said. The boy does not seem to be able to, or want to, deal with what happened. Do you truly believe he killed all those children? Those were his friends. All the evidence appears to indicate so, but nothing is substantial. Until we are able to get through to him, we will never know exactly what happened that night. The mother stared through the small glass on the door of her son's room. The ten-year-old boy continued screaming while he banged against the padded walls. Let me out of here! Let me go! That was Jonathan Nichols, Jack of the Lantern. 
as read to us by Josie Babin. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. Her email address will be in the show notes. Thank you, Josie. Tonight's second story comes to us from Brian Baru. His story, Blasted Tower, has also been accepted by Down in the Dirt magazine. When Sean was six years old, his parents died, and he was foisted upon his only living relative and black sheep of the family, his Aunt Carly. She was extremely reluctant to take him in. A young boy had no place in the torrid, chaotic life of a barfly seeking out Mr. Wright, or at least Mr. Wright now. But when she learned of his meager college trust fund, she snatched him right up. The estate lawyer informed her that as legal guardian, she could use it sparingly to pay for Sean's necessities. All she heard was she would... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com be getting extra money to help pay some of her outstanding debts and bar tabs. She would finally have some breathing room, even if she'd have to put a little food in the brat's stomach and put some second-hand clothes on his back. If you didn't have family, what did you have? She chuckled as she signed the adoption papers. Carly had abandoned Sean in her cold, dank apartment for days, leaving him to fend off a battalion of cockroaches and a few rats that outweighed most cats. When Carly finally stumbled home from her weekend of debauchery, the landlord caught her in the hallway and threatened to call the police on her if she ever left Sean alone again. He didn't want to evict her now since she was finally able to pay rent, but that kid didn't deserve that. No one did. Not wanting to risk losing the extra money, she was forced to make a decision. Changing her lifestyle wasn't an option, so Carly dragged him behind like a rag doll from bar to bar in pursuit of chemical-induced happiness and a temporary reprieve from the delirium tremors. During his first year of captivity, dozens of men drifted in and out of Carly's life. Thankfully, none stuck around long enough for Sean to learn their names. Some of them were relatively harmless, looking for any port in a storm. Unfortunately, most were of the garden variety of abusive assholes, They'd shack up with Carly for a few nights, and then the yelling and beatings would start. Once they'd tired of using Carly for a punching bag, they'd come looking for him. Over a short period of time, Sean had accumulated a grotesque roadmap of abuse, cuts, bruises, cigarette burns, and broken bones. He'd hide under his bed or in his closet and pray to God to rescue him from this life of misery. But every morning, he awoke in the same situation. Sean wondered if there really was a compassionate God in the universe. Why had he forsaken him? 
He spent the next few years in smoky dive bars that reeked of stale vomit and fresh urine. They were the kind of bars where everything goes and the cops looked the other way for a small donation to the police retirement fund. So no one batted an eye when an underfed nine-year-old went around collecting empty drinks and overflowing ashtrays. In exchange, the bartenders would buy Sean a cup of soup or a sandwich. One night, Sean felt someone behind him staring a hole through him. He whirled around to find an elderly woman sitting in a previously empty corner booth, the same empty booth he'd just passed. Cigarette smoke hung around her like a shadow, obfuscating everything but her wraith-like eyes and her gnarled hands, shuffling oversized cards. An icy chill ran down his spine as he met her piercing gaze. Sean did his best to avoid that corner like the plague. Every time he glanced in that direction, her eyes were stalking him like a bird of prey, quietly staring and shuffling. As the night dwindled on, she ran out of patience waiting for him and beckoned him over with a twisted, crooked finger. Sean vehemently shook his head no, and then she croaked out, Sean, come here. Sean hesitated, but his feet moved on their own, inching towards her. Sean fought with every ounce of his willpower, but she pulled him like a moth to a flame. She spread the cards face down across the table. Hello, Sean, she rasped. Her ancient face was lined and wrinkled from unknown decades of hard living. Her steel-gray hair was wrapped up in a tight bun atop her head. How, how do you know my name? Sit. I've been sent to give you something, and I'm running out of time. He stared up at her, afraid to get any closer. I haven't come all this way just to hurt you. Now stop this foolishness at once, she commanded. Sean meekly climbed up on the chair across from her. Sean, she said and ran her fingers over the cards. You have great potential. He stared at the cards because he couldn't meet her soulless eyes. I can only start you on the path. Path? Her gnarled fingers separated three cards from the spread and slid them in front of him. The blasted tower. She flipped the first one over to reveal a picture of a crumbling medieval castle. The devil. She flipped the next showing a picture of a large dancing goat. The magician. She flipped the last card to reveal a young man kneeling at the edge of a big circle with a star inside. Inside the star was a tongue of flame. He stared at the tarot cards in awe. What does this mean? When he looked up, she was gone. The only thing left were the three cards and a haze of smoke. Sean! Carly screeched from across the bar, relieving... She slurred and stumbled out into the night, hugging on to Mr. Right now. Sean hesitated, then snatched the cards off the sticky table and chased after his aunt. Sean managed to get through the next few years, reasonably unscathed. He attributed his newfound good fortune to those three tarot cards, which he kept in a Ziploc bag to protect them from the elements, just as they had protected him. Sean would keep them in his pocket whenever he left the confines of the apartment. When Carly drank herself into a coma, which was every weekend she could, Sean would sneak off to the library. He read every book he could find on the subject of tarot and the occult. Although it had a sparse selection, he was able to gain rudimentary education on the esoteric arts. By his freshman year of high school, he'd scrounged up enough money to buy a tarot deck and a few books on witchcraft. During his sophomore year, he did everything he could to fit into the cutthroat world of high school popularity, for he had fallen for Mandy, the head cheerleader. But no matter what he did, he couldn't break out of the poverty-stricken, geek caste he was forced into. Sean performed several tarot divinations for guidance on this matter, and they all told him that it was not the right time to act. Over the next few weeks, Sean ran out of patience and took matters into his own hands. He delved into his books and put together an attraction spell from a mishmash of sources. He'd never done one before, so he employed the three cards for extra luck. He did everything right, so he thought. The spell was done outside in the day and hour of Venus, using three green candles. Then he waited, and dreamed of, and lusted after her from afar. The morning of Halloween, he awoke and felt that the day had finally come. 
so he decided to divine for guidance to make sure. Instead of his normal tarot spread, he shuffled in the original cards and drew only three cards face down. He closed his eyes and turned each one over, and then hoping with every fiber of being, he slowly opened his eyes. Sean's heart stopped when he saw the original cards laid out before him. The blasted tower, the devil, and the magician. Tears of joy rolled down his emaciated cheeks, and he said a heartfelt prayer of gratitude. He put on his favorite black shirt and well-worn corduroys and slipped the cards in his pocket. When he got to school, the student body was buzzing with the news that Mandy and her boyfriend, Zach, the captain of the football team, had broken up. Gods be praised, Sean whispered. He'd planned and rehearsed what he was going to say to her at least a hundred times in his head. But when he saw her standing at her locker, his mind froze. He took several deep breaths to ease the anxiety and rubbed his sweaty hands on his cords. Sean pushed out his scrawny chest the best he could and approached her with the swagger and coolness of a dead fish. When he was close enough to smell her perfume, he tripped over his own feet and spilled out across the hall behind her. Sean scrambled back to his feet as she looked at him with those beautiful hazel eyes. Mandy? He could feel and hear his blood pumping. Panic set in and he blurted out, Will you go to the prom with me? Time stopped and he forgot how to breathe. Mandy turned her nose up at him. Ew! No! You are so gross! Get away from me! She turned and walked away laughing at his expense. Crestfallen and heartbroken, he slumped against the lockers and went over everything in his head, trying to figure out what went wrong. Then Zack turned the corner and punched him in the stomach. Sean doubled up, fell to his knees, and was thankful for not having money for breakfast. I'm going to beat the shit out of you after school, dork. All throughout the day, he tried to discern what went wrong, but couldn't figure it out. So he plotted out a different way home, to hopefully avoid running into Zack. Then he skipped his last class and snuck out early to avoid getting his brains beaten in. The new route was longer, but well off the beaten path. He zigzagged through the burned-out and dilapidated buildings to arrive at the halfway point, the abandoned train station. He stopped for a minute to catch his breath and take in the unfamiliar surroundings. The train station had been a major thoroughfare decades ago when major industry flourished in the city. But when the plants closed and moved to other cities... There was no need to keep this station alive, so it was closed and boarded up. The two-acre plot behind it was comprised of a warehouse and several smaller storage units fell into decay and disrepair and was fenced off. Sean tried to peek through the cracks in the boards to get a glimpse inside the station when the slate-gray October sky unleashed a frigid downpour on him. Shit! he exclaimed and rattled and pounded on the locked doors in vain. Within seconds, he was soaked to the bone. Damn it! He screamed out in frustration. Of all days, why today? He asked. He hung his head and began the second half of his waterlogged, arduous journey home. The rain came down in sheets now. Water squished between his toes with every step. He sloshed through puddles and piles of dead autumnal leaves. The once proud and majestic oaks looked meek and embarrassed unable to conceal their naked vulnerability, having shed their once bright, yellow and fiery ochre coats. His teeth chattered and goosebumps rioted along his skin. Sand's coat, he empathized with the unprotected trees as the cold October wind buffeted him. Behind him, Sean heard the squeal of tires breaking on wet pavement and whipped around. Zack and three other football players emptied out of a late-model sports car. Each of them easily outweighed Sean by eighty pounds. A lead weight of fear lodged in his belly. Thought you were going to get away? Hatred and malice beamed from Zack's eyes. Oh shit, Sean exclaimed and broke pell-mell for the fence. He reached the razor-wire-topped fence to cries of, You're dead, geek! Sean hopelessly searched for a hole in the fence, but couldn't find one. He glanced over his shoulder. They were only a short distance behind him and closing fast. Shit, shit, shit. Sean dug his fingers into the rusted diamond segments and climbed to the top, but hesitated at the razor wire. Then a hand clamped onto his pant leg, and Sean envisioned them pulling him down and beating him to death. 
So he reached into the razor wire coils and pulled himself out of their reach, cutting his hands and arms to ribbons. He flipped over the fence and ran as fast as he could into the heart of the storage area. Sean heard the rattle of the fence behind him as he snaked through the derelict buildings, leaving a trail of blood in his wake. His hands were torn wide and deep, and a rivulet of blood ran down his left arm, where he must have nicked an artery. His lungs burned, and black spots dotted his peripheral vision. He'd have to stop running soon, but needed somewhere to hide. Then he saw it. The blasted tower. The derelict warehouse had been built with red and brown bricks, opalescent windows, and a massive set of steel doors. Through the years, the bricks had accumulated a patina of grime and black mold. Most of the windows had been shattered, and the doors were tagged with assorted gang paraphernalia. Sean dug into his pocket, winced as he exasperated his wounds, and pulled out the three cards. He extracted the tower card from the bag and held it up for comparison. So, he reasoned, this is where I'm supposed to go. Strewn about its perimeter was a kaleidoscope of broken bottles, shards of green, brown, and clear glass cracked and echoed from under his feet. He did his best to minimize the noise by not stepping on the larger pieces. A ruffle of feathers from above drew his attention. He looked up to see a murder of crows standing sentry along the crenellated rooftop, like petite feathered gargoyles. Dozens of bright orange eyes peered down at him with contempt. He put a bloody finger to his lips, in askance of their continued silence. But his luck ran out, and in unison, they let out a series of caws. Fuck, Sean whispered, stared daggers at them, and silently cursed their existence. He's over here, Zack yelled, and spiders of panic pounced into Sean's brain. Cat calls and high-pitched hyena laughter filled the damp air. Sean scrambled to the steel doors but his heart sank into his stomach when he saw a rusted and padlocked chain barring his entrance. He slumped against the door and was about to let blood loss and exhaustion take him under when he saw his salvation. One of the ground floor windows was broken, leaving just enough room to crawl inside. The sound of crackling glass announced that he had company, so he quickly darted under the guillotine of broken glass. The warehouse smelled moldy, of stagnant water, of rot and decay. The sparse illumination came from a single fluorescent tube light hanging from the ceiling. The sickly pale luminescence cast monstrous shadows of broken train engines, axles, and gutted seats onto the walls. Rain cascaded through the gaping holes in the ceiling, creating oily black puddles on the floor. I think he went in here, Zack said, and kicked out the window Sean used. The icy fingers of death closed in around him as more of his blood escaped from his body. He glanced around and saw his only possible sanctuary, the gaping maw of a stairwell descending into the bowels of hell, probably. With the last of his reserves, he pushed to towards the stairwell, half loping, half running. He slipped and tumbled down the steps, landing in a shallow pool of stagnant, brackish water. The pain was immediate and intense but thankfully no jagged stabbing pain of a broken bone. A minuscule bulb encased in a wire cage flickered above him, casting light onto a steel door next to him. Sean got to his hands and knees when windows shattered and voices echoed through the warehouse. Zack and his crew were relentless. Their riotous laughter and murderous howls further solidified their intentions. Bleeding, sopping wet, and almost dead, Sean threw his body into the door with reckless abandon. Its rusted hinges screeched from ages of unuse, but the door swung open. He winced at the sharp noise and sprawled into the pitch-black room. Footsteps slapped the stairs behind him, and Sean frantically pushed and leaned into the door. It clinked closed behind him, sealing him in a dark tomb. Sean slumped down against it. Hands and feet pummeled it, but its thickness buffered their attacks. His short, pain-filled life flashed before him, and he wept like never before. The end was near. He took out the tarot cards and ran his diced fingers across them one last time, leaving streaks of blood across each one. He whimpered while tears ran down his face. A merciful darkness washed over him, blotting out his consciousness and stealing his breath. 
the blood-soaked cards fell from his hands and fluttered to the floor. When they kissed the floor, a brilliant white spark jumped into the air. Then a pinprick of light sputtered to life in the center of the room. It expanded into a tongue of flame, then grew exponentially until it was a raging column over five feet wide and touched the ceiling. A glossolalia choir cut the silence and impregnated the room. Sean's wounds stopped weeping, and he felt the icy grip of death release him. His breath returned to him, and he gasped and pried open his swollen eyes. He looked down at his hands and arms, which were healed, leaving only a slight scar here and there. What the fuck? The column of fire exploded, sending spurts and gouts of fire across the empty room. Sean shielded his eyes and was assaulted by the stench of awful and burning flesh. It was so potent that his stomach churned and bile caught in his throat. Sean looked up and saw a tall alabaster goddess, beautiful beyond comparison, standing naked in the center of the pentagram, etched into the floor. She was perfect in every way until she approached, and he noticed a pair of small, bone-colored horns poking out from under her silken, white-blonde hair. Then he saw her scythe-like claws and cloven hooves. Magician, she purred. What is thy bidding? Her sensual voice made him weak in the knees and strong elsewhere. Sean stared agape for what seemed like an eternity, then managed. What? He couldn't take his eyes off her and ran through hundreds of erotic fantasies. She strutted closer. The sound of her hooves click-clacking on the concrete snapped Sean from his lust-filled trance. She smiled and showed off sharp canine fangs that gave her an otherworldly seductiveness. The sensual heat she produced was stifling. You called me? Did I? How? Sean stammered. You caught my attention with that attraction spell. But that was for Mandy. Magician. You are more powerful than you realize. She smiled again. Would you rather have her or me? With that, she raised an eyebrow and ran a clawed finger between perfect breasts that defied gravity. Sean blushed and averted his eyes. She giggled at his embarrassment. You are cute, she said, and reached out towards him when a red spark burned her hand. She glared at the lines of the confining pentagram and let out a guttural, demonic growl of frustration that reverberated off the walls. Sean scrambled back from the pentagram and pressed himself against the door. I will not hurt you, man-child, unless you want me to. She smiled again and leaned toward him. Sean stared into her ink-black eyes and shook his head. No. She sighed and strutted around the confines of the pentagram. Fate drew you here with those cards. She pointed to them with a clawed finger. This pentagram and your... She hesitated, as if tasting the words, then purred out, blood, and licked her lips. Eons ago, one of your ancestors bound me into servitude. Every generation of your lineage has an opportunity to call upon me on All Hallows' Eve using those cards. But I didn't mean to, Sean argued. Yes, well, you were about to die, and I am bound to protect you until you have made your request of me, the succubus said matter-of-factly. What? She sighed again. I stopped you from dying from those wounds. Consider yourself extremely lucky. I am bound to grant you one earthly bound request. You're like a genie? Do I look like a djinn? She snapped. Well, no. More like a porn star, Sean replied. She smiled with otherworldly seductiveness. Sex? Sean shook his head no, and she pouted at him. Can you bring back my parents? He blurted out. No, their souls have moved on. Besides, that would be beyond my capabilities. Sean sadly exhaled and said, Okay, so, what will it be? Money? Fame? Give me a few minutes, okay? She rolled her eyes and shook her head. Whatever. Sean contemplated what he'd read about a demon's abilities. I could arrange a night with this... Mandy she said, while admiring her claws. That's quite all right, Sean said, while looking at his hands. I almost died from that endeavor. True, she replied. Sean thought long and hard. 
and then it came to him. A wolfish grin crept across his face while he stared at her. What? she asked with a look of surprise. As Sean informed her of the request, her eyebrow arched. Man-child, she said. I have never heard such a request in all my years. So is it a deal? She paused. Man-child, are you sure? He nodded and said yes with total confidence. They discussed the details of his request. When they were done, she called up another column of fire with a series of hand gestures and phrases in some ancient language. She glanced over her shoulder with a smile and said, I suggest you stay here tonight for your safety. Until then. Then she stepped into the flame and was gone. In the morning, Sean safely made his way home. Months later, there was a knock at the apartment door. Carly, half drunk, stumbled to the door, unlocked the puzzle of locks, and pried it open. The succubus was wearing a slinky, tight-fitting black evening gown, replete with black stiletto heels. All visage of her being a demon were concealed. Sean! Carly screamed. There's a very expensive-looking call girl here. Where did you get the money for her? Sean emerged from the bathroom wearing a rented tuxedo, holding a corsage. He pushed past his aunt. That's not a call girl. She's my prom date. That was Brian Baru's Blasted Tower, as read to us by Antoinette Bergen. Antoinette Bergen is twisted and dark, sarcastic and pessimistic, weird and demented. All these things combined somehow make her absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen and probably won't harm you if you follow her. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Take care of yourselves this week and come join us again for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.